book of the Bible and the final book of the Torah. After the exodus from Egypt, Israel was at Mount Sinai for one year, entering into a covenant with their God. And then they had the disastrous road trip through the wilderness, and the exodus generation disqualified themselves from entering into the land promised to Abraham. And so Deuteronomy begins with Moses standing in front of this new generation explaining the Torah. And it's from here that the design and purpose of the book unfolds. Deuteronomy is a series of speeches from Moses where he's calling the next generation of Israel to be faithful to the covenant with their God. At the center of the book is a collection of laws, which are the terms of the covenant between God and Israel. Some of the laws are new, but many are repeated from the laws given earlier at Mount Sinai. And that's actually where this book gets its name, from a Greek word, deuteronomion, which means a second law. Now, surrounding these laws are two outer sections of Moses' speech. Each of these are broken up into two parts themselves. Let's just dive in and we'll see how this whole thing works. So Moses, first of all, summarizes the story so far, and he highlights how rebellious the previous generation was in contrast with God's constant grace and provision in the wilderness. My friends, would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're reading from Deuteronomy chapter 3 this morning, uh, verses 23 through 28. And this is Moses speaking. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. And would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. And look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many times has it felt to you as though God was simply silent in response to your prayers? Or how many times has he felt as though God just told you flat out no? One of the biggest challenges that we face in our walk with Christ is the challenge of hanging on when God tells us no. I was unemployed for six months in 2015, and this is not the same story I just told the kids. Um, This is before that. I was uh, was in seminary. I had bills to pay. Rent was not cheap. My wife had a job, but we really needed the income from both jobs to make ends meet. And God made me wait. And I, I mean that very literally because I actually had a job offer within a couple of weeks of losing my old job. It would have paid more than the job I just lost. And when I sat down to pray about it, very clearly God told me no. 
do not take this job. You're going to wait. Which did not make my wife happy when I told her, by the way. But she has similar stories. We've, we've both had this experience. In fact, when we moved down to Port Lavaca to begin my first appointment as a pastor, it became pretty clear that God was not going to give her a job while we were there. We were going to be a single income house for When we moved here to Corpus, something similar happened. God told her to wait. We've both experienced that sort of thing where we, we knew what we needed, we, we had the opportunity to get it, and God said, nope. Not right now. The Old Testament scholar John Goldingay lost his wife to multiple sclerosis after she had suffered with that disease for 43 years. She was wheelchair-bound and unable to speak for a good chunk of her life. And so he and many others were praying, of course, for God to heal her, but he didn't. He said after he died, hundreds of people over the course of a couple of years, came to tell him how even though she had been unable to speak for, for years of her life, she had ministered to them just by her presence. They could sense somehow that she was praying for them, praying over them, that the presence of Christ was with her. God didn't grant their request for healing. But that does not mean God did nothing. I waited six months for a job, even though I could have had one much sooner. God made me wait, and then as I prayed for months for the right opportunity, God didn't grant my request. But that doesn't mean God did nothing. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul has a handicap, a thorn in his side. We don't know what it was. We never will. We don't have any real way of figuring it out because this is the only mention of it that we have. Whatever it was, he wanted it gone. And God did not grant his request. But that does not mean God did nothing. Moses has already been told by God at this point in Deuteronomy that he's not going to enter the promised land. Um, in, in Numbers, it's explained that the reason Moses isn't going to go into the promised land is that when he was told by God to go and call forth water from the rock, he kind of showboated it. He made a big drama out of it, and then he kind of took credit for it. He said, look what I did for you people. And God said, all right, well, now you can't go in. Deuteronomy gives us a second reason. And this reason has to do with the people. Right? Moses says, God won't let me in because of you. Because it's under his leadership that the people rebelled and refused to enter the promised land the first time. Of all the, the people in the Bible, Moses might actually be my favorite. Because uh, he, he just has the best story, and I think he has the funniest personality. Um, right, when God calls him to lead his people, he does everything he can to get out of it. Right? 
He tries every excuse in the book. He was perfectly happy as a simple shepherd living out in the wilderness. And he tries every excuse he can think of to get out of the responsibility God is calling him to. And God has an answer for each one of them. There is no loophole. There is no escaping what God is calling him to do. And even then, he doesn't ever seem to realize how important his leadership will be. He's no sense of just how important he is. He, he just kind of stumbles along trying his best. And the beauty of Moses is that there's really nothing special about him as a person. He isn't very charismatic. He's not a good speaker. He's not particularly smart, and nor is he particularly holy. Not like me. He also doesn't really seem like he's a, like a natural leader. He doesn't seem like he just has that gifting. It takes him years to figure out how to lead these people. His father-in-law has to sit him down and tell him what delegating is so that he doesn't try and do everything himself. He has no clue what he's doing. The only qualifications Moses has are, one, he loves his God. Two, he, he's eventually willing to serve once God gives him no other option. I guess that counts. Um, three... He genuinely wants to please God. That's it. That's all that is needed for him to be arguably the single most influential human being of all time aside from Jesus himself. And he doesn't ever seem like he's fulfilled by this or satisfied by it. In fact, his experience leading the people of Israel brings him a lot of grief and frustration. Right? I mean, he, he literally claims here that the constant rebelliousness and complaining of the people are the reason that he is not going to get to go see the promised land. And we can kind of infer from that that he's blaming the people for his action when he brought water out of the rock, right? Like he's just driven to frustration so much that, that, that it's their fault he messes up. But in the end, his fate is bound up with theirs. His job was to lead them from Egypt to Canaan. And if the generation of people he led out of Egypt is not going to be allowed to set foot in the promised land, how could their leader be allowed to set foot in the promised land? So God is tough with Moses. And we don't like the idea of God being tough with anybody, especially not with somebody who very clearly has this unusually close relationship to him. If God's tough with Moses, imagine how tough he might be with us. We don't like that. But God will also be tough with Jesus. And he'll be tough with Peter. And he'll be tough with Paul. Let's be really clear about what happens in this passage, because it's something that's actually pretty disturbing to us. Moses asked for grace, and God said no. He's not supposed to do that. I mean, we're told all the time, if you ask for grace, you get grace. But here God says no. That should freak us out a little bit. God does not always base his decisions on what an individual wants, but, but on the bigger picture. And in this case, it's not the leader who's important. It's God and the people of God 
who matter? And what kind of message would it send to the people if they knew that none of their parents or grandparents had been allowed to enter the promised land? All of them died in the wilderness, never having seen it, but Moses, their leader who was responsible for them, got in. This is why the Old Testament will consistently describe Moses as a servant and not a leader. And he's specifically, by the way, God's servant, not the people's servant. That's why he can pray this prayer in the first place, because a master has obligations to his or her servants. And the servant is allowed to point that out to them and to, to, to make requests of them. But it's also what sets constraints on his expectations. Because in the end, it's the master's agenda that matters and not the servant's. So God is tough with Moses. He tells him, don't ask me about this again. But he also takes the edge off a bit. He doesn't grant what Moses asks, but he doesn't just give him nothing either. This isn't the first time he's done this in the Old Testament, by the way. When Adam and Eve commit the original sin, God banishes them from the garden, but he makes them close. When Cain commits murder, God banishes him from his family, but God promises to protect him. In fact, we, we tend to get told or taught or we just figure out on our own that you know, when God answers prayers, it's always yes, no, or wait. Right? Have you heard that before? Um, I hate to break it to you, but that's not actually how it works in the Bible, not in the Old Testament especially. What God does when he answers prayers, especially in the Old Testament, is he doesn't do what the prayer asks him to do, but he does do something else. He's not going to let Moses into the promised land. But he is going to let Moses see the promised land. Moses, you can climb up on this mountain and you can look out and you can see the land that the people are going to go into. It's better than nothing. And it wouldn't have happened had Moses not asked. We really struggle with the idea that God is not like a cosmic vending machine. All of us do this, but I mean, this isn't, this isn't something like, yeah, I as a pastor am good at this, but you all are not. No, no, we all have this problem. Because if God is so good and God loves us so much, then surely God should give us the things we want. And frankly, it's just easy to fall into that pattern of, I need this and this and this, and I'm going to ask God, and if God really loves me, or if I've been good enough, I ought to get it. And then it doesn't make sense to us that he's so tough with us sometimes. And we wonder why he doesn't just give us what we want, especially when what we want is something good. Right? And we might understand if God doesn't, you know, give us a, a piece, like a set of clothing we really want, right? Or, or something shallow and, and, and pointless. But, but if what we want is like a job to support our family, if what we want is to be healed from a terminal disease, how could God refuse to grant us those things? But you see, that mindset is exactly the same mindset that led to Adam and Eve eating the fruit. Because it boils down to an assumption that we know better than God what the right thing to do is. 
it ignores our very limited perception and perspective. And it also ignores what God is really up to. Because if we are so entirely focused on what God is not doing, we aren't seeing what he is doing. Moses is not going to be allowed to lead the people into the promised land. But the Lord has been raising up a new leader who actually seems to be much better suited for the role than Moses was. And he will take them in. Jesus in the garden prayed desperately for a different way. But his death and resurrection broke the power of sin and death. Peter and Paul were both thrown in prison repeatedly, and each time their presence in the jail cell led to people being saved. God does not always do what we ask him to do. Because God has his own agenda. He has his own plans. He has his own things that he needs for us to do. And that means that, yeah, sometimes he won't give us what we want. Sometimes we won't get the job we think we want to get. Sometimes he won't provide for us in the way we think we need to be provided for. He might not heal us or our loved ones on this side of the grave. He might not let us go where we think we deserve to go. He might not give us what we think we need. And that's where it becomes really difficult because all of us can accept that God might not give us what we think we want. But sometimes he won't give us things that we believe are necessities. Because he has other plans. All of which are part of of a larger purpose which we may never understand in this life. But when that happens, God's answer to your prayer is not no. His answer is no, but. No, Moses, you can't go to the promised land, but come up on this mountain and let me show you. He may tell you no, he may not grant your request, but that does not mean that God is doing nothing. When God says no, listen for what comes next. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.